Our message today is going to be John 6, 36 to 37, the necessity and origin of faith. The necessity and origin of faith. We'll begin for context in verse 26, 26 to 40. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, that is God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the true bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence, we come uh, wanting to understand more accurately your word. We know, Lord, that your word is truth, so sanctify us in the truth, that we might, Lord, believe it and glorify you based on what we understand. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing in John chapter 6 with this whole narrative of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then continuing a dialogue with them, and actually a contentious and um, uh, one that is full of unbelief as far as the multitudes are concerned toward Christ. Christ, however, is not taken by surprise. Christ, of course, understands what's happening because he understands the nature of the people. The multitudes, they were fed in verses one to 15. In John chapter 6, 1 to 15, he miraculously provided food for them. They were in a desperate condition late in the day, and they could not go away, so Jesus provided for them. Miraculous food. They understand from this, in verse 14, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. They knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, who, it, who was prophesied by Moses to come into the world. They believed it, but they believed it partially. And partially means incorrectly. They thought that this 
Christ, this Messiah, this prophet coming into the world, is coming merely for their physical well-being, merely for material benefit and not for spiritual benefit. We see that in verse 15 because they wanted to arrest him or seize him, grab him, and then make him a king. It says, by force to make him king, to make him the king of the country in order to resist and throw off the yoke of the Roman government. They wanted him to be their king because he would give them plenty of food to eat. Wrongfully so. That's why Christ escaped. It says he withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. He escaped their grasp so that they would not make him king for their worldly and material benefits. After this, in verses 16 to 25, his disciples go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side by boat. Jesus meets up with them miraculously by walking on the water, and then they reach the other side of the lake. The multitudes, the crowds that were just fed, they follow these disciples to the other side, and then they see that Jesus is there, even though Jesus went in a different direction from his disciples, they are amazed, how did Christ end up there with his disciples? So they ask him in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? They want to know about the miraculous nature of Christ, how he ended up with his disciples. But they didn't have a true motive. They did not have a true motive or reason for asking this. That's why Jesus does not answer their question. Jesus ignores their question and then tells them what's really wrong with them in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're seeking me, not because you saw a miracle and you know that I am here, sent by God the Father for a true spiritual reason, that is to save men from their sin. You're seeking me not because of that. You're seeking me because you ate. Your stomachs were full after I fed you to the full. Your stomachs were full and you just want me to provide physical things to you, not spiritual things. He tells them straight their false motives, evil motives, in coming to Christ. And then he encourages them, exhorts them in 27 to 29, to look for the food which endures to eternal life. And that food is himself. That food is himself. In verses 30 to 35, they, being stubborn, being stubborn and blind to spiritual things, Jesus clearly tells them they need to seek for spiritual food. But in verses 30 to 35, in their stubbornness, they demand, in verse 30, another sign, another miracle, another supernatural feat by Christ. What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? As though he had not been doing enough since he's been in public ministry, whether in Jerusalem or at the wedding feast, or in other situations, whenever he was with them, like in this chapter, as though they didn't see enough. They keep insisting on miracles, 
for their physical provisions. They're not looking for miracles to understand eternal life, but to have their bellies bulging. They want their, they want their gullets full and their bellies full. That's what they really want. And Jesus, he confronts that. They do not see it. So Jesus says in verses 32 to 35 that he is the bread of life. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, he who comes to me shall not hunger. He's not talking about physical hunger because we have physical hunger every day. And then he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about physical thirst because our mouths are parched every day. We need to drink water every day. That's the way of life. He's talking about spiritual life, that he himself is the bread of life. They need to come to him. And coming to Christ means believing in him. Verse 35 says, come to me, believe in me. Coming to him, believing in him. Why does he say so? Why is he telling this crowd of people, you're not seeking me for the right reason? Why is he telling this crowd of people that you don't believe in me? Why is he telling this crowd of people about spiritual things and not answering their questions? Whenever they deflect, he does not pursue their deflections and tangents. He gets straight to the heart of the issue. Why does he do so? We, can, we should learn from Christ. We could and should learn from Christ because this is the nature of the way people are. When we, whenever we preach the gospel to them, when you talk to your friend, your friend is going to say, but what about? But what about? Yes, but. Yes, but. What about? Yes, but. Isn't that what they do? You don't understand me. You don't understand my situation. Right? You don't know what's in my heart. I have good intentions. You can't condemn me. You have to watch your words. Can't you say it more politely? Can't you be nice? Aren't we supposed to be nice? Why aren't you nice? This is how they retaliate and throw the truth back onto us when they don't want to hear the truth. But Jesus does not let up. Jesus does not let up. He doesn't let up until the end of the chapter. But look at it at verse 36, our verse. He clearly told them the truth and that they needed to believe. 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. But this is a clear and strong but here. But I said to you. He already told them sufficiently. He already told them clearly that they were in the wrong. He already told them. He told them, for example, in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He already told them what he knew of them. Look at 664. 664. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning 
who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He tells them again to their face that they do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. From the beginning he knew who was talking to him. Not people seeking him for right reasons, true motives, but with false motives they were seeking him. Look at chapter 15. John 15, John 15, 24. He expands on the nature of the true heart of these people, the real condition of these people. John 15, 24. Actually, let's start at 15.23. 15.23. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. In 23, he who hates me hates my father also. Christ our Lord reiterates this point. If we hate him, we actually hate his father. Why does he reiterate this point? Because people, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity, they want to say that even though they don't follow Christ the way the Bible teaches we should follow him, they don't hate God. They don't hate God. They don't hate the Father. They love God. You don't have to follow Christ the way the Bible says so, because you can still love God without following Christ this way. But Christ does not give us that option. He who hates me hates my father. Whether we admit it or not, if we're not following Christ, loving him the way he taught us to love him, we hate him. Whether we would admit it or not, we hate Christ and we hate God the Father. Verse 24 if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would, have, they would not have sinned. Meaning this, the works were the miracles, the signs, the supernatural actions of Christ for many people. They saw it. They were eyewitnesses of whatever he did. If they had not seen those, then God would not condemn them on the basis of those miracles. But he is condemning them on the basis of those miracles because they refuse to believe. No amount of miracles caused them to believe in and of themselves. The miracles did not do so. But they have sinned now. And now he says, they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Therefore, if we do not believe in Christ, we hate Christ. That's the biblical equation. That's the biblical condition. If we do not believe in Christ, then we hate Christ. If we believe in Christ, we do not hate Christ. And the belief or faith we're talking about is true faith. We're talking about genuine faith. Not a fictitious faith, not a false faith, not a bogus belief. We're talking about true belief. That's what the Bible means here. If we have true belief, then we love Christ. If we don't have true belief, then we hate Christ. 
Verse 36, John 6, 36. This lack of faith or lack of belief in the crowd is aggravated in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You have seen me and yet do not believe. I am here. The prophets for many, many generations throughout the Old Testament predicted, they prophesied that I would come into the world. Many of the prophecies have been fulfilled in my birth and so far in my ministry. They will be fulfilled in my death, burial, and resurrection, my ascension, and in my second coming. They will yet be fulfilled in those other ways. But so far they have been fulfilled. You have seen that I have performed all of these miraculous signs right before your very eyes. You have seen the way I live. You have seen the way I teach. You have seen the way I interpret the Old Testament. You have witnessed all of these things. And yet you have blind eyes. Your ears are stopped up. Your hearts are hearts of stone. You do not believe. He's telling them, reminding them, that any number of provisions God gives to them, those provisions in and of themselves do not produce faith, do not create faith. Faith is necessary. That's why he's telling them, and yet you do not believe. Faith is necessary, yet they don't have it. This is astounding, is it not? That they have so much set before their very eyes, so much set before their very eyes, and yet they ascribe it to someone else. They have so much set before their very eyes, and yet their eyes are so blind, they cannot see what they must do to receive the benefit of those things. They have so much set before them and explained to them about eternal life, salvation, forgiveness of sins, being in the presence of God, in that place where there will not be any weeping or gnashing of teeth, in that place where every tear is wiped away from our eyes, where death is no more and there is no more pain or sorrow or crying. Revelation 21.4 That these things are going to be absent and these are the benefits, these are the provisions God has set before us and yet so many people having seen Christ whether literally or figuratively in the preaching of Christ, and yet they walk away. They refuse to believe. He's even telling them that he knows how wicked they are. He knows how reprobate they are. He is telling them that. We see it right here clearly in 36. Yet you do not Believe. We saw it in verse 64. Do not believe. And then in 666, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There were many willing to be fed. There were many who were willing to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. They were willing to go across. There were many who were wanting to get fed even more. But notice it says, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
Why? Because they didn't believe. If they truly believed, they would have remained with him. But because they did not truly believe, they did not remain with him. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let's look at another example of this. John chapter 8. Another example of how the Bible calls a group of people disciples. John 6.66, it says, Many, therefore, of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Many people claim to be disciples or believers or Christians or brothers in Christ. They claim that they have a superficial claim to it, but not a substantial and real claim to it. They have a superficial claim to it, but not a substantial claim to it. We illustrate not only in John 6, but in John 8. John chapter 8, verse 31. 8, 31. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and the, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He puts a condition here in verse 31. A condition upon whom? The Jews who had believed him. They believed him in some artificial and superficial way. In some surface way, they believed in him, but not in a true way. That's why he tells them, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you remain in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. I understand that you are believing some things about me, but do you truly believe? You don't truly believe unless you remain in this word I'm preaching. Then you are truly disciples of mine. Well, they object. Let's see their objections to Christ. Remember, we're talking about believers in verse 31. But these are bogus believers. And we will see that illustrated. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Know also at verse 37. 37. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. Jesus says, you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. They were called believers in 31, who had believed in him. Now he says, you seek to kill me. My word has no place in you. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father, meaning Abraham is not the father of Christ. They will accuse him of being an illegitimate son. In history, in church history, the Jews, one of their common early slanders against Christ was that Christ was the illegitimate son 
son of Mary and a Roman soldier. Mary and a Roman soldier. That she committed fornication with the Roman soldier. That's what the Jews said. And sometimes even today, you'll hear Jews say that against Christ. They blaspheme Christ that way. Well, it started right here. It started right here in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Meaning, if you are the son of a Roman soldier, then Abraham's not your father or forefather. But Abraham is our forefather, but not yours. So then, verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Verses 41 to 44, Jesus accuses them of being of the devil. Being of the devil. Verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. 41. Doing the deeds of your father. Then they say to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father that is God. Now, why would they accuse him of fornication or or being born of fornication? Well, it goes back to, though it's not explicitly said in the Bible that the Jews believed that he was the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier and Mary, they imply it right here, we were not born of fornication. You were born of fornication, Christ, but we were not born of fornication. In fact, God has preserved us And we are of a godly line. We have one father that is God. God's on our side. God's not on your side. You see how they turn up the heat with him. But then Jesus, he answers in verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar And the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. See how they have artificial faith? You do not believe me. You actually belong to Satan, the devil, he tells them. Verse 48. They don't let up. Verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now they accuse him of even being a Samaritan and being demon-possessed. A Samaritan and demon-possessed. Then, finally, notice what happens in verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted to put him to death by stoning. This is the superficial believers Jesus addresses in John chapter 8. The same way he has superficial believers in John chapter 6. And when he knew that, he told them to their face, yet you do not believe. John 6, 36. And we should do the same. We should do the same. That's why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves 
he says. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. We should be examining ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 The scripture commands us all the time to make sure about the values we have, the words we say, the, the deeds we perform every day. Make sure that they conform to the word of Christ. Make sure. And whenever we suspect that there is something amiss in ourselves first and then in others, we should bring it up. Speak the truth in love. Jesus is doing this, speaking the truth in love. Now, we come to verse 37. Clearly, Jesus tells them they don't believe. So then naturally, we have to ask, how then does one believe? If they do not believe, is all hope lost? If the multitudes, remember, it was 5,000 men plus women and children that he fed. If the great multitudes of people do not believe, then is all hope lost? Are we to, supposed to be dispirited? Are we supposed to be demoralized and walk away and say all hope is lost? No. Verse 37 is where our hope is. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Remember what coming to Christ means. Coming to Christ means believing in him according to verse 35. How is it that one actually does believe in Christ? Christ correctly condemned the unbelief of the people. He correctly condemned their unbelief because they refused to believe. But on the other hand, he says in verse 37, how it is that they would or could believe in him. How is it possible for anybody to believe if we are all so hopelessly fixated on things that are false, things of the material world? If we are that way, how does the change occur? How does somebody who lives in sin then change and then desire to live in righteousness? How does somebody who used to love all of his sins and never thought anything of them then suddenly has a conversion, suddenly has a different frame of mind, differently has a different heart and perspective about the things he used to do. How does that conversion, how does that change occur? It's called in the Bible having a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. It's also called being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 being a new creation, a new creature in Christ. How does this miraculous transformation take place? It takes place ultimately by God. It originates in God. The choosing of people to be saved and giving them faith to believe, that is all by God. So the faith is necessary according to verse 36, 
But faith comes about, it originates in God the Father himself. It originates in God the Father. That's verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Notice first he says all. All. When Jesus said all, did he mean every person in the world, every individual, every human that has ever lived from the time of Adam until the end of the world? He used a universal word, a universal term, all. Did he mean every individual that ever lives? No. We see that clearly in the very phrase he used in verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. All that the Father. He is qualifying, explaining further what he means by all. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Whoever, therefore, the Father gives as a gift to his Son, they will believe in the Son. The Father has to give a group of people who were lost and will be saved. He gives that group to the Son, and then they believe in the Son. That's the sequence. That's what he means in verse 37. He does not mean every individual. Let's notice, for example, in John 6, 44 to 45. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In 44 and 45, he speaks of coming to me. Come to me, meaning believe in me. In 44, he says, no one can believe in me. No one can believe in me, verse 44. In that way, he's being universalistic. He's, being, um, he's including every person in the world. It's impossible for everyone in the world to believe in Christ unless something happens, right? In 44, in other words, he's saying, you do not have the ability to believe in me. Jeremiah 13, 23. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? What's the answer? No. No to both, right? The Ethiopian cannot change his skin, and the leopard cannot change his spots. Impossible. We're talking about humans and animals. It's impossible for them to change their complexion, right? It's impossible for them to do it. So so if the answer is no, impossible, Jeremiah 13, 23, then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Does he mean you can indeed do good? No. He illustrated in the previous question. No. 
You cannot do good because you are accustomed to doing evil. If you are accustomed to doing evil, it's impossible for you to do good. That's the same in John 6, 44. No one can come to me. No one can believe in me. No one can do this good thing in coming to me. Unless, now he has a condition. Unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The condition is the Father has to draw that individual to the Son Only then will he believe in the Son. Unless the Father draws that individual, he will never believe in the Son of God. It won't happen. And 45. This teaching is not a novel teaching. It's not a strange doctrine. It's not a doctrine presented by a false teacher someone lately on the scene. That's why he quotes in verse 45, two prophets, he quotes Isaiah 54, 13, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 34. And he puts those words of the prophets together, they all shall be taught of God. There's our word, all, they all. Who are the all who are taught of God. Does he mean taught of God in hearing the Bible explained, audibly hearing? Or does he mean taught of God in the secret, miraculous, and mysterious way, convincing the person inside that he is a sinner who needs to be redeemed by believing Jesus died on the cross for his sins? He means it in the secret, mysterious way. Because it says in verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent sent me draws him. This is what Christ means. We are unable to believe But how do we have this capability of believing? We have it because the Father, God the Father, chooses to some people here called all that the Father gives. That group, they are miraculously changed from within and they desire to believe. They want to please God. They want to love God. They want to fear God from the time that God works that miracle in them. When they hear and learn from the Father, that's how it comes about. This is what Christ meant in John 6, 37. These are the ones who believe in him. Now, in 37, he says, I will certainly not cast out. We will see next time where we will emphasize this point because Christ will emphasize it in 38 to 40 that he came not only to accomplish the will of the Father by saving us but also to ensure that we are saved forever. Not only to save us now which is wonderful in and of itself but to save us eternally to save us forever and ever 
never to have any of us slip through the cracks, not let any of us be dropped, not let any of us ever be lost again. That's why he says in verse 37, I will certainly not cast out. I will certainly not cast out. It will never happen. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, 22 to 30. John chapter 10, 22 to 30. On another occasion, Jesus encounters his opponents. 10.22. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father We are one. As usual, the Jews approach him with a a false accusation. As though Christ had been keeping them in suspense. He wasn't keeping them in, in suspense. He taught them plainly. Yes, he also taught them with metaphors and figures of speech. But at times, he also taught them plainly. They knew what he was claiming to be. They knew that. And he says so in 25, I told you, I told you plainly, and you do not believe. Why do they not believe? Because they don't believe the works. They don't believe the truth behind the miracles, the works that he performed. And why don't they believe, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. In this Verse 26, what is the critical factor? What is the crucial factor? Are we to believe to become his sheep? Or is Jesus saying in verse 26 that if we are his sheep or because we are his sheep, we believe? He's saying the latter. You do not believe. Why? Why don't they believe? Because you are not of my sheep. If they were of his sheep, if they were all that the Father gives me, if they were the ones that the Father draws, if they were the ones that the Father taught, if they heard and learned from the Father, they would be his sheep. But because you're not his sheep, you don't believe. The same sequence, the order of salvation we find in John 6. But then, once we are his sheep... What does Jesus provide? Verses 26 and, uh, 27 and following. 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We hear the voice of Christ by the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ. We are known by Christ. We follow Christ. 
Christ gives us eternal life in verse 28. We shall never perish, similar to what he said in John 6, 37. I will certainly not cast out. They shall never perish. And why? Because no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. Christ, figuratively speaking, has a strong right hand. God the Father, figuratively speaking, has a strong right hand. We, sheep, are in the hand of the Father and in the hand of the Son. No one can snatch us out. There is no wolf. There is no demon. The devil himself... A, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 The devil himself, no demon, and no human, no man, including ourself, can snatch us out of the Father's hand, can snatch us out of the hand of Christ. It's impossible, he says. This is an assurance that once we truly obtain salvation, eternal life, truly do believe our faith will last forever and ever. This is what He has provided for us. If God begins a good work in us, Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It will certainly happen. Yes, there will be false believers. Yes, there will be unbelievers on the outside too, who may be perverse and evil men, who might be dissemblers, like we sang in Psalm 26, deceitful men who will pretend to be believers and persecute us. Yes, the religions of the world will persecute us. We will have those things happen. We will even have moments of doubt. We will have even our own sins tormenting us. Yet, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, verse 4. Our faith that God grants to us is that faith that will be sustained and ultimately will overcome the world. Indeed, 2 Timothy 4, 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What God starts in us, He will finish in us. Let us, therefore, seek to have true faith. Let's preach the gospel faithfully, and let's trust the promises of God that when we are in Christ, He loves us, He protects us, He ensures that what He started will be completed in us. Amen? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.